I mean, how bad could it possibly go? I think we've had worse things happen. Well, there was the the week where, um, for whatever reason, my mic like only picked up on a backup mic instead of the one that was in front of my face. Yeah, I did manage to make that s- work. Work works. It works a term. We'll we'll go with it. <laughs> it was it was functionally not unviable. I mean, you've got technical difficulties every now and again with your podcast. Is that right? Um. With Yeah, because Precipice. you're recording on Zoom with Precipice, yeah? Yes, so we just put up with the general bizarre audio stuff that happens. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of compressed audio, and so it can yes. sound like if you get glitches, you're kind of robotic sounding. And I, yes. I guess that's yeah. the, the fun point. But that's the great part about being in person. Yay! Sorry, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yes, we are rolling, which means it's probably a good time to also roll an intro. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Pop. I'm Cricket. I'm Wombat, and we have a guest. We absolutely do. We're doing another in-person guest today. We did have some trouble with our videos, so we won't be recording that. I do apologise. But with us today, we have our guest. This is for the Fire and Blood edition. I guess the, the full Game of Thrones edition, which I forced Wombat to basically run the entire thing through so that we could you specifically... House of Dragon? Yes, House of Dragon, Fire and Blood. It, it, I, I feel like I'm going on, but uh, we are here with Sydney-based writer and, well, you're a lot of things, aren't you? But you're now also an Augie winner, is that right? Yes, um, I, I might start with my name. Yes, this might be the, a good place <laughs> no, to no, start. No, we, we will we will wait on that till the end of the oh, episode. Oh, that that's going to be a reveal. Otherwise, I'm just going to be a mysterious <laughs> voice. <laughs> it's been a while since we've done an interview. It was Rich Carvalho was the last one, so you know. And we still don't know who this one is. No, <laughs> not yet. It's you are a complete enigma. No one is going to know. It's right. going to be local legend, writer. All right, I'll, I'll reverse into my uh, my bio then. Um, <laughs> yes, no, I am I, a screenwriter, a film school. I'm a NIDA graduate. Um, I have a feature film credit. Uh, that movie is called Unsound. You can find that one on Netflix. Uh, otherwise, I had a comic book come out this year. Uh, that one's called Metropius, and that's what won the Augie last night. For any of our international listeners, that is the Australian Writers Guild Awards, uh, and it was for animation. Yes, okay. most outstanding animation. And I read that you were the only nominee, is that right? Uh, yes, yes. So um, basically I got this very funny phone call where they're like, all right, so we've announced all the nominees, um, but you would have seen that we didn't announce any nominees for your category. This is a phone call to tell you that um, you can't tell anyone, but you've won and we need you to show up <laughs> to the ceremony. Um, but we want to reassure you it's because that there's no other nominees in your category. So, so we can't make it public that you're a nominee because obviously you've won and that would be a spoiler. Um, and yes, no, we just want to reassure you that the reason you're the only nominee in this category is because 
it was the most outstanding entry we got and the others just didn't hold up. And I'm like, I'll believe you. That That's reassuring. <laughs> Thank you. And I guess you can get away with saying that on a small podcast because, you know, n- probably nobody will hear this of, of note. You're not going to throw anything down the drain. Well, like I said, we haven't said my name yet, so I'm still in the clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, oh, yeah, sure. Just go for a deep dive on the project Metropius and I'm sure you you'll figure it out. You might just look at the award winners. Yeah, that, well, I, yeah. We've, that. we've named the award. Yeah. <laughs> it's very true. So for the, those out there who want to do their homework and, you know, PI practice. <laughs> oh, that's very appropriate given Metropius. Yes, which is kind of a detective noir story. Although I don't know how good we'd be at that. I don't think we'll make the show without dropping a name, oh. just, just casually. We, we can try if you think that'll be fun. Oh, no, that'd be rude. I mean, like, okay, so the name would, we'd have to have it on, like, the title. Right, because that's what that's what we did with Richard, and it's just it's like the mystery guest, the mystery guest revealed right at the end. Yeah, no, it'll be classic kind of Game of Thrones though. We'll we'll, we'll get the twist at the end, and I'll I'll actually be be like wouldn't, wouldn't Jonathan classic Craig. Game of Thrones be we all have the same name, but like maybe one very slight vowel change. We're the faceless podcast voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just changing uh, characters and personalities as we go. And yeah, yeah. We should play musical mic. We should have put it on stereo and then just jumped around and be like... Oh, that would mess with... We, we can do that next time. And one we of could us... do that in post. Let's fix it in post. One of us is wearing a necklace. That means we're actually a really old woman. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and, and make sure that just one of us doesn't eat the berries. We'll be fine. <laughs> nah, I'll be good. Okay, actually, yeah. Look, given that everything that is food kills me, surely the not food thing won't. Yeah, that's very true. I think I'm the safest bet. Was that a purple wedding reference? I'm yes, trying it was. To get... Okay, because I'm not sure if they're quite berries. No, well, he does eat something. Yeah, they're, they're, they're gems from Sansa's kind of headpiece, I believe. Or was the necklace in the TV show? Yeah. Oh, legit. So he's just choking on a, a gem. Well, no, it's poison, oh. but I, I don't think it's it's typical berries. It's actually kind of like a, a gem. I'm going to have to look this up now, but this is me just reaching for my Game of Thrones lore. Remember? We've gone deep in there straight off. Just, oh, yeah. How was the poison delivered? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's the great, great mystery, isn't it? It's meant to be this kind of silly buggers game of Elena Tyrell goes over to Sansa and like says something to Sansa and like just touches her headpiece. or And she was even gifted the headpiece, I think, by like a Tyrell plot. I'm, I'm desperately trying to remember back a couple of years to where I read uh, it. Uh, in, in the TV show, it's, it's the night that she saved who then became yeah. the jester. But again, I don't know if that's the books. Um, look mm. at the waveform. It's going to move slightly closer. I don't know if that's the books. Um, just dyslexic here and not even trying. <laughs> like, it takes me a while to get through Harry Potter. You want something that complicated? When she's... Yeah, no, I don't think she's gifted... Uh, anyway, all the... the Song of Ice and Fire fans can come out uh, and with their pitchforks for me if I'm incorrect. <laughs> but that she, yeah, she is gifted this headpiece, this necklace that has these gems that end up being it's the Tears of Lease, I think is uh, what it's called. And then Olena like pops that out of her headpiece, and then Cricket and I just both like, yep, that sounds correct. She's nodding <laughs> well, to each other. It, more than anything, is that right behind us? Uh, we're actually in your office, and on the top shelf is the entire current collection of the Game of Thrones universe. They're you, I front can and centre. Yeah. Fire and Blood, and then you've got a Game of Thrones in the lovely... That's the big illustrated yeah, version. The big illustrated yeah. version, and then you've got the lovely coordinated um, bundle. And yeah. is that... That's also the Dangerous Women. 
Yes, and then one of Georgie Boy's um, anthologies that he's curated. Um, but it's also got one of his Song of Ice and Fire short stories is at the back of that anthology. So it's also so it's it, it's got a Game of Thrones short story in it as well. Yeah. Wow. And How long then... is a George R. R. Martin short story? Is that like a feature film? or <laughs> Correct. <laughs> well, can you see the size of that book? That's a chihuahua killer. Um, and his story is at the back, which takes up the... Um, yeah, the, the whole back part of that anthology. <laughs> well, I suppose we should start by asking what were your thoughts on House of Dragon? And in case it's not clear at this point, we'll just state the obvious. This is a spoiler warning. <laughs> yes, an absolute spoiler warning. Just listen a beware if you are still in the process. The, the season has officially ended, so hurry the hell up. And also, like, the book is a finished story, and I... I... Hey, hey, speaking for the dyslexic, don't start with that. <laughs> Okay, I was about to launch into my, I don't have sympathy for people who are going to be like, oh, spoilers. And I'm like, it's a prequel story that exists before a Game of Thrones. The history is set in stone. And I'm pretty sure like season four. Crap, it might even it be is the Purple, purple Wedding. It's the I'm Purple Wedding. Sure. If you want to go back and rewatch that episode, he's going to, uh, Joffrey's just going to come out and tell you what happens to Rhaenyra um, and her whole family. So it's, it's a. Uh, well and truly established, you can't really have a House of Dragons spoiled for you, um, but I love the game of making you care about these characters, delving really deep into these characters in a way that the book doesn't because of the fun way the book is written. How is the book written for people who for me. don't... For Wombat. <laughs> what, what differences are we looking at? Yeah, so uh, in contrast to A Song of Ice and Fire, which is a typical prose narrative, uh, Fire and Blood, George R. R. Martin has written this from the perspective of a... All right, I'm going to do finger quotation marks, modern day maester, as in he's in real uh, time yeah. of Game of Thrones. And he's compiling a history on the Targaryen family. So he's writing... So George is the he... Is <laughs> writing this maester who is giving his thoughts and opinions on different histories he's collecting and he's drawing conclusions from different primary and secondary sources from different eras. Oh, wow. Uh, that sounded convoluted. Interesting. But there's like three different primary sources he's studying, this maester's studying. Um, another is another like arch maester. Uh, others are just, you know, accounts of this knight said this and word of mouth recorded this. And then a very popular character is Mushroom. And Mushroom is a character who has not survived to the TV adaptation, probably for good reason, because Mushroom's fucking weird. Um, but he's basically... I'm so curious as to Mushroom now. Mushroom is a dwarf because George R. R. Martin loves his dwarf characters. He's so... The, the famous uh, Tyrion. And what he tries to do with Tyrion is he likes, you know, his bastards and broken things, as he describes them, is, is usually where he puts his wisdom, the characters who have the depth and insight into the human condition he puts into his bastards and broken characters. And and, and the dwarves are often what is, is a part of this, is what George is doing. Um, so we have Tyrion in A Song of Ice and Fire and we have Mushroom in House Such of the Dragon. Such a different yeah. name to what we're used to. Oh, well, because Mushroom is a court jester. So ah, okay. uh, so I guess it's more just a, he's leaning into, um, you know, that's his the silly name the royals would give uh, a, a dwarf to make fun of a dwarf because it's a comedic jest, 
jester. Um, but Mushroom leans into it because Mushroom's personality is this sex deviant, uh, just really he's I won't he's good natured, but he has that kind of cruel humor. Um, and very dirty humor. Oh, so much like Tyrion. But Maybe worse. they'd be worse. too similar. But worse. Yeah. He's kind of... Every history Mushroom has put down is like, the orgy was huge. <laughs> everyone was in on it. Um, so Rhaenyra slept Greece. with everyone. <laughs> so. <laughs> so he's from ancient Greece. Yes, yeah. It's just He's got debauchery. his priorities in order. Um, but that that's why we love Mushroom, and it's... So just for example, talking about Rhaenyra's story and how complicated her love life is. So we kind of get the TV version where she's like, ooh, did she, she almost went to the brothel with Damon and there was sexual tension, but nothing happened. But then she came back and then she you know, threw herself at Cole, <laughs> Kristen Cole. Um, and then everyone the next day was like, ooh, who did Rhaenyra sleep with? And it was a big deal. Um, so, for example, that's the maester, as one primary source, would have had one opinion and was like, oh, she lost her virginity to Kristen Cole, while Mushroom's like, oh, no, she lost her virginity to Damon. So that's where the show gets to have a lot of fun, because the book itself doesn't make a definitive answer. It doesn't say Right, so they this get to have a bit, of a, bit yeah, of a play. Yeah, the, the, the show gets to have this adaptative fun of actually putting in stone a true history because Fire and Blood very purposely doesn't do that. A lot of times the maester's like, but maybe we'll never know who Rhaenyra lost her virginity to. It's just a, a mystery lost to history. Well, I suppose the other thing is with Martin actually being a showrunner again, mm. um, this could kind of be the solidification of what happened. Yes, that's kind of... I think that has been implied by some of the interviews George has done. I don't know how heavily involved in the show he is, but... I'm he just... sort of claimed there's a lot more than they had yes. season five to eight. Like, I know when they started really hitting the promo for it, um, yes. he started talking more about how, oh, he was pushed out of seasons oh, yeah. five to eight and that's why they were bad. But I don't I know how much that. that is just damage recovery. <laughs> like, no, no, yeah. no, watch this. It's going to be good, people. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, no, no. My, my understanding of the timeline is similar. They just wanted to get on with it. They've ran out of material. George needed to focus and write a book, allegedly. Uh, <laughs> which he will get there. He will get there. No, I believe in him. We'll, we'll get there. But I, I think he, there has been more consultation. So it's... it, it And I think that they're being very clever how they're doing it. So, for example, that the Kristen Damon, uh, who did she sleep with first was handled really well creatively because they, they had a mystery and then they basically tried to imply that it's both are kind of true and happened on the same night. So both versions of history make sense. Just whatever faction, because it's all about, you know, enemy factions using the narrative they want for their own political purposes, right? So the the, the Greens are going to be like, oh, she slept with her uncle and she's sullied and isn't she a bad moral person because of this? And while we're nearer, you can have the other argument where she's like, no, she's a, a woman with her own agency who chose who she wanted to sleep with and it was fine and not weird at all. <laughs> totally, totally not weird as long as we take out the whole age thing. Yeah, no, it's fine. Because, I mean, it's Game of Thrones and Targaryen, so we've already established that incest is fine. It's just that massive age gap. I Tell me when to stop talking, because I can go deep into this, but I, I love the lore of the Targaryens and their incest and how 
as a Valyrian culture, that's totally fine for them and they don't blink an eye. But Westeros and the Andels and the First Men are like, no, incest is not okay. <laughs> They're like, uh, so like the whole, the religion of the sem- the Seven and the Seven-Pointed Star and all that. So that they're not cool on incest at all. And so the Targaryens kind of rode in on dragons, conquered Westeros, and were like, hey, we're into incest. You're going to have to deal with it. And this actually caused like a lot of political tension and nearly ended the Targaryen reign on multiple occasions. By this point in history where um, Rhaenyra, Westeros has kind of been beaten into submission, uh, like the... Uh, yeah, the Targaryens have been there a while by the time we get to the show, haven't they? Yes, where maybe... God, you're gonna. I'm going to try and count the generations, but if you go <laughs> Aegon, the, the whole thing with Aegon's two sons and then the reign, the peaceful reign of Jaehaerys, I, I hope I'm not missing, like, another link down and then the... We should just we should just get a book out here to just be fact checking. <laughs> right, it's like she's got to get it wrong. And then I'm pretty sure then it's the Council of a hundred and one, uh, which was does it pass to the Queen who never was Rainies or does it pass to uh, Viserys the first who um who is actually I really didn't like as a fire and blood character. He's a shit king. He's not good. He's a waste of space and basically causes the Dancer Dragon what a waste of a human. But then we get House of the Dragon and this wonderful fleshing out of a series, and they've actually I think done that's a masterful said as job. Well. Like yeah. he was saying, it was played better than the character that he'd written, and it was really what he wanted for it. Yes, and they did that without changing the history, without changing the canon, which is what I found really impressive. Both can simultaneously be true. It's not like the character of a series made any choices that were different to the source material he's still the same character who on paper goes through the same motions but he just does it in a you see this character who you understand you emphasize with you know why he makes those decisions he's suddenly such a great character as opposed to a piece of shit that caused all the uh, nearly caused the targaryens to well Well, he basically did it seems to me that the way fire and blood is set out because it is coming from these external sources and not being told in a traditional narrative sense that there's obviously less empathy. Mm. So that when you do have an actor like Patty Cosentine come in and actually play the role, your opinion is shaped in a way from seeing it just as on a blank page as just another creature of history and then seeing him more akin to, I guess, another tragic character. I don't want to use Ned Stark, but that character's tragedy. It's like he's doomed to fail. And in a sense, that's why we also kind of enjoy the journey is that mm. he is trying his best to be as good as he can. And yet things go poorly. Yeah. You could also say it's one of those things where normally when you go from book to screen, you lose a lot in that. In the book, you can just sort of write, oh, the character was thinking this or feeling this. But I suppose in the style that it appears um, Blood and Fire is written, Mm. you wouldn't get that. No, you don't. Well, no, no, because you only get the primary sources being interviewed speculating about what these characters um, were thinking and why they did the things they did. I... I want to compliment, like, I think you're you're absolutely right, Nathan, in that you are distant the entire time because you're reading a history, but George is such a skilled writer that it actually boggled my mind. I'm, I'm reading Fire and Blood and I'm like, why am I so invested in these characters <laughs> that I'm so distant from? Like, I need to know what happens to the second cousin's stable hands, like, <laughs> wife. 
And like, I'm gonna, it, I'm gonna jump on that and say because I I gave my initial thoughts. I think two podcasts ago, two episodes ago. Oh, I think it was much longer than that, bud. I think it was that far ago. But one of the things I said was when watching House of Dragons is that I didn't get that character investment looking early off. So, but you've said that's something you did. So why why don't we jump straight into the show? I mm. say straight in, like we're not twenty <laughs> minutes into this. Um. <laughs> But t- tell us about why you thought you were invested, and then maybe we'll see if I can counter, just for fun. Oh, in a character like Viserys one, or a character like Damon. See, Damon's fascinating, and I pitched him to my friends. I was talking to. I'm like, get ready, he's gonna be best pony. Like <laughs> you're, you're not even ready for how much the world is gonna love Damon. And like, I'm, I'm saying this before it. It then happened and the world loved Damon because <laughs> uh, he's he's written so all you get in Fire and Blood are the choices and actions of these characters. And yes, you don't have access to their, their thought process or why they do things. And almost mapping a character like that is is so fascinating because you get all their you just have to study their contradictions. You're like, he was so loyal to his family but he murdered all these people in a really horrific way. Uh, so <laughs> how do you make sense of that? And then, and and that's fascinating, and that's kind of why you're so engaged with the written word, and then you, the show goes and casts bloody Matt Smith, <laughs> one of the most charismatic actors of our time and, like, well-loved in pop culture fandom and who can do so much with just facial expressions. So that marriage, like, initially when I heard um, Matt Smith had been cast as Damon, I was like, what? Because you're talking about a warlord, like a really horrific warlord. Um, you could almost imagine someone like, if, if they had said Clancy Brown, yeah. For example, have been cast as Damon. You wouldn't bat an eye. No. Because but... he's been known to play those archetypes. And to see someone like Matt Smith essentially go against type. It is against type. Um, like in the same way that, you know, when uh, there was the controversy of Robert Pattinson getting cast as Batman. Same deal. Mm. But the way Matt Smith, it's still the same character, all the same contradictions. And it's even better that they've thrown in this extra contradiction into the melting pot that is then such a charming actor of Matt Smith. Um, So, yeah, Damon's just, I'm very excited for that ride. I I couldn't be more invested. I was already very invested in Damon. Now I'm even more so. Well, that, uh, I suppose, would bring me to my counter. Do you think, or part of the counter, do you think that part of your investment is because you were already invested in the books like how much interest did you have when you went into the pilot or started watching the next few episodes yeah no no that's interesting I'm, I'm trying to think if there was like a character I hated and or was very disinterested in and the shows made me like them more because I guess yeah Damon's the, the, the <laughs> low-hanging fruit um so Alison's fascinating because she's She's the whore archetype in the book. She is not painted to be sympathetic at all. She's very, from the start, painted as conniving. She's, she's, I think she's not the same age as Rhaenyra in the book. She is older. There's about a 10-year age gap, so they're not friends. So straight away, the show so has... quite a difference. It is quite a difference. They've created that sympathetic, look, they're friends who are now going to branch off and... Go so she's, yeah. she's older in the she, books? It's she's not older. that. Okay. She's about 10 years older, so there is more of that evil stepmom straight away is in the archetype of her character. So they're, they're never eye to eye from the start. There's nothing to betray 
in that relationship. While the show from the get-go is like, oh, they're actually sweet together. Maybe they're gay. Who knows? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Which is a great extra layer. Um, But then... Which is fascinating because I'm thinking to the, like the final episode, I think, of the season where Otto like brings the page from the book. I don't even, it's a really yeah, dumb scene. No, I remember that. But he's like, remember your friendship with my daughter, whatever that was meant to be. But the reason it works is because it's Rhaenyra. I, so what I do like then is the scene, the shot it immediately cuts to where she's in the council. She's sitting there silently while she's surrounded by all these men bickering, wanting to go to war, and kind of the voiceover is she's the voice of reason trying not to go to war. And it's such a great shot. But it's a moment that doesn't really exist in the book. So that's something that makes me invest more both in Rhaenyra, and I I do have more sympathy for show Alicent as well because they've immediately humanised her and given her more to play with. What other changes do you think that work from this transliteration compared to the book. I know we've already talked about the idea of giving characters more empathy just through acting alone, but are there some points where you've gone, that wasn't in the book, but holy shit, that was a remarkably better change? Or alternatively, something that you were like, that didn't happen, and why the (laughs) f*** did it just happen? I can probably talk to that second one more. I'll see if I can circle back to another change I liked, but straight away I guess I'll hone in on the thing I Go for the low-hanging fruit. The, the thing I hate the most is every scene that mentions a song of ice oh, and fire <laughs> is awful. Like, I don't know if it's just me, but every time a scene begins and it's... Almost straight away, I'm like, why is this scene 10 times dumber than all the surrounding scenes? And then I'm like, oh, no, it's going to be another prophecy scene. And then they mention a song of ice and fire. It's like they they drag out one weird writer just to write the terrible prophecy scenes and then yeah, shove that, them that back the in the box. That was the Segway guy who's like, Game of Thrones still needs to sell a bit to get its budget back. Just just put a scene in here for us. It reads like such a producer decision in that this very elegant writer's room has created a wonderful adaptation where they're being true to the source material while simultaneously making good changes for the better, but then they wheel out the one guy to be like, please insert... A prophecy scene. So, so let me backtrack. I'll, I'm I'll also ex- really sorry to whoever that writer is. I'm sure uh, you're a professional, yeah. and we're just absolutely bad. You're just doing you. your job. You were told to do it by some producer, but so holy if that's actually hell. that writer's idea, and they've just like done it for, <laughs> and they're like, "This is something that I like." But I mean, that is something that happens in a writer's room where, like, you you yeah. make the decisions, and you obviously think they'll all be good, and sometimes they're just crap. <laughs> I wouldn't know what that's. Like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, so the the idea that. So in the book, I'll, there's never a mention, like maybe, we don't know, we, we're still missing two books from A Song of Ice and Fire before we can round out our full knowledge of the law. So until then, I will say it's not true. But the egg Just in the, like, Aegon, the last page, and like my father told me that back Yeah, then. <laughs> and then Egon was a dreamer. No, no, this this <laughs> idea that Egon the first, Egon the Conqueror, somehow for like the whole reason he invaded Westeros is because he knew of the night, king and or the the others um 
the, the show watchers the Battle would, of Winterfell. Yeah, the, the show watchers would know them as the White Walkers, um, which is that there's actually a distinction in the law uh, for the book readers, but basically the zombies, the ice zombies. That, that, that if Aegon thought that he had some profound destiny, that he had to come to Westeros to stop this eventually, thanks to Arya Stark. Um, it, it's just, it's completely bullshit and makes me so mad. Um, I don't even know if Arya's the one that kills him in the books. Because remember, that was a showrunner well, idea. Well, the books aren't up there. And yeah. I can almost like, that's guarantee so that's canon. not what George is going to do. It's not. It's not going to happen. I, I'll bet a lot of money on it. This can come back and haunt me in a decade. Whatever. It's not going to happen. Well, wasn't well George isn't going to publish in the next decade. I wouldn't worry <laughs> <Yeah>. about it. <laughs> I'm but safe. I'm safe. We, how many times has he said in the past three months? He's like, no, no, it's getting there. But no. I was reading that pre-COVID, if nothing else. Yeah, no, it, it's getting there. It, it, like Rothfuss, he's kind of working on his charities. But wasn't there this whole notion that um, all through Game of Thrones, everyone was like, oh, but if George dies, how's the series going to finish? Is anyone really going to know? And there was always this, I, I guess, lingering sense in the air that, oh, yeah, David and Dan know the actual arc of the story and they will finish it off right Turns out we were wrong. Well, I think what they said, that the final decision is how it ends. Like, mm. it, it is canon that Bran goes to the throne. It's just the events in between there are a little blurry. <laughs> a little blurry. little blurry. And even then, just from interviews with George, uh, he, he's a gardener in his style of writing in that he's a, definitely, like, he needs to drop one domino at a time before he gets on to the next thing. Like, we've seen the early outlines of that. He wanted John and Arya to get together. And obviously he's abandoned that as he's written and, you know, knocked over the dominoes. So I think, I think the reason George is taking so long is because he watched the show, he saw it go to shit, He's absorbed the public reaction, and I think he's lining up his dominoes again. I would not be surprised if things change. That's why there's a delay. He just needs to do, like, some things will be similar. I think Daenerys's arc is similar. I don't know. There's the whole thing with, um, oh, I'm going to forget his name. Euron Greyjoy and his horn, his dragon horn, is going to play a very important part in whatever Daenerys's final beat is while that's just non-existent in the show they didn't give a shit so there's still lore that isn't mined like there's magic systems in the book that wasn't mined for the show but i I reckon george he's he's gardening in potentially different directions based on what has happened (laughs) to his story now i have to ask i was having this conversation um earlier with a friend that he was under the idea that game of thrones isn't exactly High fantasy, or at least the show itself, can't be deemed as high fantasy because of the lack of magic that, you know, it's more low fantasy with a touch of dragon. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, that's a very interesting conversation. There's a quote from D&D about that, but let's, <laughs> let's, let's jump here first. Yeah, no, I, I guess it's not so much... It def- depends how you're defining high and low fantasy against hard and soft magic systems. Mm. That Those two aren't equivalent to terms so game of thrones is a soft magic system as a part to a hard magic system and i'll define those by like you have access to clear rules so say if you're an author you want to write the style of plot that will unfold in that you're you give all your audience the tools up front as in you would explain the hard rules of your magic system and therefore part of the joy of the plot unfolding is you're like how are they going to use these tools to defeat the enemy 
Um, so that's a bit like Harry Potter. I mean, the rules did take a while, but we essentially, we got the rules. There were the three rules yeah. of magic, which I don't remember. You can't make life and yeah, can't make yes. food and something else. She set up enough things for us in that, you know, she was seeding in the Horcruxes early that after book five, readers were able to tell where we were going to find a locket in book six kind of thing like the the seeds were there we knew enough about horcruxes and we could guess that harry was a horcrux by the seed she'd set up so yeah there's a, there's enough uh, hard magic that we could get there the other obvious low-hanging fruit example is brandon sanderson um and hey things, i'm okay with that yeah and things and things like mistborn where he's just like here's my hard rules up front and now it's almost like a puzzle piece like you've, you've been given enough rules that you're almost writing a mystery um and that the audience part of the fun is how are we going to solve the plot and defeat the villains with the magic system we have on hand while i'd define a soft magic system is your studio ghibli's it's your lord of the rings it's more just magic the sequel trilogy in star wars <laughs> yeah oh, star power. wars we'll put one in. is a soft magic system it's just it's more ethereal it's a poor part of the world the the characters in world don't really understand it and the magic as a plot device will just show up and do things sometimes <laughs> and it's not really instrumental in 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 the core plot function in the way a hard magic system is. So, so there's a relationship between how the audience, that the author wants to use the magic system about whether or not you're defining it as soft or hard. Um, but then back to your definition of is it high or low fantasy? I don't know. For me, that's more of a genre commercial term about where you would put it on the shelf. And we shelf are talking just the TV story with this answer? Yes. Um, in in, in my in my thoughts, I mean, yeah. I, I would be looking at, say, comparing when we go to TV, not necessarily Lord of the Rings, I'd probably say closer to uh, The Wheel of Time, has a lot more magic in place compared to A Game of Thrones. Well, what would you call The Sandman? Is that high fantasy or low fantasy? Point. See, I almost want to say that's low fine, fantasy fine, fine, fine. <laughs> because of its contemporary elements. Yes. You, you'd almost of... call it urban fantasy yeah. because of how of its placement through history is that it never utilizes the typical. Um, is it sword and shield? Yes. Is, is yes yeah, more associated shield. with what I would call high fantasy? Yes, yes. exactly. It, it's more urban and low. In the realms of it all, um, whereas yeah, I would still yeah, Game of Thrones in the Sword and Shield, but still deemed as you know low, but with its magic. I don't know. I don't know. Well, You're the writer. If you were to ask me, I would call House of the Dragon high fantasy with a low magic system. Okay. A so sorry, a soft magic system, high fantasy, just because we have dragons, we have a medieval England. Uh, setting and everyone's in fancy ball gowns, um, <laughs> and therefore it, I'm like that. That's high fantasy. <laughs> Fair. No, I can accept that definition. So, would you say House of Dragon leans on the fantasy more than Game of Thrones? And if anyone knows the quote from D and D, I'm going to throw out. You'll know I'm absolutely leaning towards it. <laughs> are you going um, to throw it out there? Uh, I can just throw it out now. Give it. So give it. D and D said. Um, that when they put Game of Thrones together for the TV series, they leaned heavily away from the fantasy because they didn't think it would get audiences. And I think as you got through the seasons, you got a little more. And I think with George being back for House of Dragon, you do have sort of back on the fantasy back there. They're not leaning away from it so much. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. It, it's almost like how revel relevant is the fantasy elements to the plot. So Game of Thrones could get in 
an audience of people who are like, I'm never watching fantasy. I'm not a person who watches fantasy, but I do enjoy watching political dramas with people wearing funny costumes. um, Season one was, we'll get people who like violence and boobs. Like (laughs) that, that was D&D's basic pitch. Yeah. And you're like, maybe there's a hint of magic. And, And yeah, so I think that's a really smart choice, but it is very much a TV commercial choice because I think the book's from the front are, you're reading a fantasy book. Don't fucking worry. Don't don't worry. You're going to get your fantasy. It's all here. It's all in the lore. While the TV show was like, no, these, this is a show for serious people who uh, don't worry about that fantasy crap. Don't well, worry. Like, outside <laughs> of the sort of the little touch of the White Walkers that we got in the pilot, mm. um, I don't think we got like really any sort of big fantasy stuff season one. Like we didn't even get um, the no. Red Priest till season two. No, Melisand. Yeah, she's not until season two. Yeah, because I think her opening is Stannis burning the soldiers, his soldiers on the beach, which Correct. is uh, after wh- Robert's death. What we get Spoilers. instead is direwolf shenanigans and three-eyed raven shenanigans, which shouldn't be underestimated. Do so, we get three-eyed raven yeah. in season it does, one? It does make an appearance. There's actually. a it's... lot of brand dreams right from the front uh, okay. start. I yeah, they did have a good line. Episode. It's like I mean, episode a good four, episode line. six. It's when pretty much after he wakes up after being pushed out of the yes, tower. Certainly. But but just the the wonderful hint that oh, this coincidence that six um, direwolf puppies were found. Oh, there's six children of House Stark who sigil, and it's like running on those coincidences that are hinted at that it's all part of the weirwood lore and like the. The but religion also things and D and D could just be like it was coincidence if they didn't yeah want to do yeah it. but it it it's that's the soft fantasy you're like is this just religion is it just superstition or is it a world where superstition is genuine that coincidences we should believe as a real sign from some kind of mythical force where gods are real because I don't know that's what you could argue is the for for all the atheists out there is the difference between a fantasy world and the real world is one where the gods and their magic is real and our world is... Well, well there is always that <laughs> that idea, especially with Melisandre and, um, you know, the Lord of Light and um, Beric Dondarrion. The mm. magic that occurs there is holy magic. Yeah. Right? It's it's the priest. It's like, get up! And, and I love this because George has talked about it in interviews where his biggest problem with Lord of the Rings is like, cool, I want to write that, but Lord of the Rings forgot religion <laughs> to a degree. It's like, he's like, there's all these wonderful cultures and races and stuff going on in Lord of the Rings, but the, the religion's very background and they're not driven by the religion, so to speak. Do the orcs worship something? Maybe, question mark. It's I not really. I think the religious <laughs> aspect from Middle Earth has explored more outside of Lord of the Rings. Like my understanding which to be clear isn't great again dyslexia and the salmarillium i dare someone to put them together um <laughs> but like my understanding is that the gods are sort of real but they've abandoned middle earth for the yeah. most part like, oh, so that everyone's a deist basically <laughs> gods are real but they're not bothering well with like us. they they did send um the wizards like they sent yeah. gandalf and radagask and whatnot mm. and they're sort of the keepers but the gods don't necessarily interfere like they might in game of thrones yeah and and even just the 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 rituals of these cultures are more cultural rituals rather than being overt religious rituals where george 100 percent hurled himself being into no the weirwood trees are of the men of the north these are their their religion and this is how they practice and here's therefore the magic 
Um, the Targaryens with their Valyrian magic is tied into their culture and religion. Um, and then, yeah, as Nathan pointed out, the best example is the Red Priests is probably, they are literally walking mages. Um, and then it's kind of fun that then the show, con- the show, the story in general, condemns almost the seven as a religion because that's the one that doesn't have any magic. So that's kind of like that's obviously the fake religion and everyone who worships that is on the wrong track. (laughs) Well, there was the note, I think it was in Aya's storyline. Yeah, it was in Aya's storyline. I can't remember who it said it, but they were talking about how um, the God of Death and the Many-Faced God Mm. and the Seven and the Lord of Light, they're all actually just the same God under different names. Yeah, yeah, which is fun because so so then you've got characters in story who are like, all the religions are just magic. Why has no one worked this out? (laughs) (laughs) Clearly in Bravos, we're a little bit smarter than the rest. (laughs) And still they haven't taken over. They're just like, we're we're very happy with where we are. I don't know why the Bravosi were Italian. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. Look at what's happening to the throne. Would you really want to be there? Wouldn't, Wouldn't you just want to keep it a literal ocean away yeah very true like money is clearly more important <laughs> oh well well essos got it has its own problems because something that obviously the show didn't explore that i hope the final books to explore is the doom of valyria and that whole like bomb of a plot point oh, i'm that sure we'll get a different tv is- series spin-off Oh, no, but but we're going to get it in the main plot it's going to be part of main canon i reckon like something's going to have to tie up whatever was the Doom of Valyria, getting answers as to what caused that will feed into the Game of Thrones finale for real. And the show never even bothered to go near that lore. Because there were certain things that were removed from the show, like Lady Stoneheart and I think even Rickon... Well, uh, Rickon doesn't I'm, even exist I'm yet s- in the this realm of the books. I do apologise that we're not actually talking too much about House of the Dragon. This is hilarious. <laughs> it's a bit more just point. Game of Thrones. It was, it's more <laughs> just the the, the the Song of Ice and Fire yeah. realm. Because I think that's a, as a as a world, and you're a world builder yourself, but that's yeah. what makes George interesting. Yeah. And I think we tease this in previous episodes as a mm. Westerosi special. Yes, so a Westerosi okay, special. Okay, I good. make no apologies, folks. <laughs> you get what you get. Please stay. I, <laughs> I feel less bad then. But I, I love Rickon. Rickon is going to come back on where uh dire wolf like shaggy back dog? yeah yeah shaggy dog's gonna be mountainous he's gonna ride that f-er into battle and he's gonna be a cannibal who's been living on unicorn island for like that's where rickon's been in the main story and like this is so rich and amazing and way too much fantasy for tv it would never work and it's it's not in the show and and uh, yeah and and lady stoneheart is fascinating because basically we're we're getting this story of all the Starks potentially will triumph at the cost of their humanity is kind of where the theme of A Song of Ice and Fire is going. Instead, the show gives us the happy epilogue of the Starks triumphing triumphing, and they're, they're all fine. Having seen the audience reaction to the show, I don't think you can call it happy. No. Oh. If you think the show was going to have a happy ending, you weren't paying attention. Yeah, and then they but, forgot to pay attention to that line they wrote. Because well, then that's the whole tragedy of, of, of Ned, you know, his idea of constantly trying to play to his own morals mm-hmm. and then choosing love results in his death. Yeah. Um, and then the same goes for, well, I, I guess more so for Arya. Arya kind of corrupts herself in her pursuit for revenge. Yes. Um, Sansa... Sansa's on the same Sansa's trajectory. On the same Sansa's trajectory. on the Cersei trajectory. 
which is beautiful. And they kind of leaned into that, but then like gave up on it. But Ned's Ned's arc is so beautiful and sets up the theme that is going to get repeated and again and again and again through the series, which is he's so devout to these are my loyalties. These are my principles. I'm never going to betray them. That's what he's famous for. And then right at the end, he's like, no, for my family, because my family loves me and they don't want me to die. I'm going to confess to the crime I never committed. I'm going to lie. I'm going to perjure myself. And thematically, uh, like the consequences of the greater universe, that's why his head gets removed. And we see this repeated with Rob Stark again, where he thinks... Like he he wants to follow in the footsteps of the example his father set, and he's like, okay, I've I've slept with Jane Westerling, she might have a baby. I don't want to create another bastard, which upset my mother so much. And he's like, I, I'm going to do the honourable thing, and I'm going to marry her, and uh, attempting to do that. Um, yeah. So is it just a Stark curse? Because John also mm. does that, but he's the only one the gods resurrect. By staying loyal or choosing family, well, he, he yeah. chose to stay loyal to the pledges that he kept to yeah. the um. I almost said the Wilder people. That's not entirely correct. We're going <laughs> to Taika Waititi. Oh God! Don't the, imagine um, Taika Waititi trying to direct a Game of Thrones <laughs> thing. See, see, John. But like he sticks yeah. to his word. He sticks to his loyalty. Um, yep. but unlike the other two, he gets resurrected. Yes, and and that's really fascinating. And I, I like we're going. It's basic. It is canon that he's going to be revealed as having Targaryen blood, but it's potentially going to be do- done in a more sophisticated way when we get the books. <laughs> um, so, so John more sophisticated than f-ing his aunt. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's great. That's probably going to happen as well. <laughs> but so John gets to be, I guess, the exception to the rule that, or the exception that proves the rule, whatever the saying is, because he, in his blood, has both ice and fire. Um, so he he gets to play with both thematics. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see where his arc genuinely is going, because that'll ultimately be George making a decision on his theme, right? We get to find out what, what's going to happen to John. Who's he... What's he going to be loyal to? Is duty or family? And I think that, that that's the beautiful core of... Uh, ultimately what the whole thing's about. I want to jump on a slightly different tangent. Mm. I want to jump back to money because, you know, <laughs> the world runs on it. We're going down Bravos route, yeah? Not entirely. Okay. So House of Dragon episode one mm-hmm. versus Game of Thrones episode one, the two pilots have drastically different budgets. Oh, yes. How do you think they compare as a writer? Because the one thing that money's not going to get you is... I mean, you could get more revisions on your draft, but you know what I mean? Like, that's mm. that money's generally going to a higher set production, to better actors, better stunts, higher quality yes. camera. Game of Thrones has the better pilot. Because <laughs> uh, after watching House of the Dragon, I then went back and I'm like, I need to rewatch the first season of Game of Thrones just to kind of remind myself what it was because it had been a while. And that pilot script is so tight and it does so much heavy lifting It's insane the amount of world building, character development. We're talking like a cast of 20 characters introduced well. Like maybe by the end of it, an audience doesn't know all their names, but they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, the feisty daughter and, oh, you know, the daughter who likes this or the queen, the queen's brother, the the dwarf. Like like, you'll have the archetypes. You know something about them that they're in your head. 
yeah, they, they, they're they're stark enough. Yeah, pun uh, <laughs> that that you know them, and 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 then you get the the brand thing by the, by the end of the episode. So it's an amazing cliffhanger, and you care so deeply about the Starks off of the back of sixty minutes, and it, it's a feat of writing. And I, I, I will oh. wholeheartedly agree to that because that I think was my biggest problem with House of Dragon was that. At the end of the pilot and even the first couple of episodes, I just didn't care. Mm. It takes a lot longer to care about those characters. I I agree that they're, they're not introduced as well, and I don't think it's for it's. I don't think the House of the Dragon pilot is bad. It's just not as good <laughs> in comparison. And I I think David well, and Dan. I will argue, even though I I resent them greatly for what they did to one of my favorite properties. They are amazing adaptators the, well, the first might, four seasons are amazing i might counter you on that <laughs> in that their original pilot <laughs> was so bad the network had it reshot i was just gonna bring that up i was like i hang brought this on, up on this podcast you're both before. going on about this and I, it was absolute gobshite yeah the, most of what was shot for the original pilot never made it and they recast of, a fair few actors yeah in that yeah i'd love to go back and actually see who got replaced? We oh, never I just want to see that original pilot episode. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I can't speak for it. Like, maybe there's a hidden writer I should be crediting. Maybe it's not David and Dan. Maybe the, the person they had in their basement writing the first four seasons deserves all the credit. Um, Lin Manuel Miranda keeps getting locked up and working in people's basements. <laughs> yes, he's in the Disney basement at the moment. But but maybe there was something about the pressure of this was such a gamble of a show. They were new and. They had to, they did it again and again and again. They're like, do the pilot again, get it right. And just that forced revision created something really good while House of the Dragon was like, you've created something serviceable. It doesn't need to go through that crucible of pure redrafting to get it right. Well, I think the other thing that goes against it, particularly House of Dragon, is how extreme this world is. Mm. So, like, if that was a show where... I'm going to say it maybe wasn't as gruesome or wasn't as sexualized. I don't think they need as strong characters. But like, I can't remember if it's episode one or two. Actually, I'm pretty sure it's two, where they're talking about marrying like the 40-something-year-old king to like the 14-year-old girl. And I'm like, why the f*** am I watching this? You know, I, I don't care about these characters. I don't want to spend, you know, my couple of hours of free time <laughs> a week essentially watching someone marry off for pedophilia or however it is you want to describe that. Whereas with Game of Thrones, I don't think we instantly had pedophilia, but we still had a really graphically violent world that we were talking about rape and just the most horrible things. But we had these characters that we genuinely cared for off the bat. People that you wanted to see their story. You wanted to know if good happened. I think what House of the Dragon wanted to do was re-look at the world's politics, which is why I don't think it was initially as violent. You go through that pilot episode of A Game of Thrones and there is a lot going in there and I feel that the reason was that they had to catch people. They had to really drag people in and say, yes, this is violent, this is brutal, and everything else... Spectacle. That would drag, it's an absolute spectacle, whereas because it's already an established IP that they were able to dial everything mm. back and really go in deep as to what was driving everything because this it wasn't the war. We're not there yet. It is the lead-up and every single decision that is going to come to a head that culminates in that final episode is all made by decisions. It's why I absolutely enjoy the first season and j just because I think it's focusing on more of those little tiny bits of politics that we 
hadn't really gotten. Yeah, I, I agree. It's perhaps it's not trying as hard because it is leaning on pre-existing audience and pre-existing property. So I think a bit of that's going into it. But I, at its core, it's also a different structural genre of writing. So Game of Thrones, by contrast, is a story of eight seasons that takes over the space of like two years max, while House of the Dragon structurally is telling a story of vignettes over like four decades. And it's just, it has to move at a different pace. It has to have a, the lens is going to be at a different distance. So we're going to have to learn to love these characters and access them in different ways. So where Game of Thrones pilot, we can really dive into a day in the life of and really follow them through every emotional beat they're going to have on one really dramatic day and get to know and love them that way. Uh, House of the Dragon almost needs to be this more distant, uh, voyeuristic veil through which we get to know these characters slowly until things start to get worse and worse. Well, folks, I think it's quite clear that I'm outnumbered here. <laughs> However, we would love to hear your opinion, so make sure you head over to our Facebook page. Let us know. We'll have a link up to this episode, along with any links we said we drop, which we normally do. Be sure to comment and let us know your thoughts on um, the world of uh, Westeros, be it your Game of Thrones fan, House of Dragon, seen both or seen none. Preferably actually seen at least something if you're going to comment. Absolutely. Now, before we finish up, what are you hoping for that is currently in Fire and Blood that... You want to see in season two? Aside from mushroom? Aside from mushroom. <laughs> Would you know, you might. <laughs> Ooh, I'm not sure. I'm quite happy to be pleasantly surprised by what the writers are doing with the interpretation of House of the Dragon. There's obviously some key things we are going to get that I hope they do well, which is blood and cheese. I hope Rhaenyra in the book... Curious and oh. concerned. Blood and oh, you should be very concerned for blood and cheese. Uh, Rhaenyra as a character takes a bit of a back seat during the war itself, and I have a feeling the show might make her more of a war princess. We might actually see her on dragon back a bit more. Maybe I don't know, but I, I would love to. Her character needs a bit of fleshing out in that direction, so that would that would be interesting. Um, and we're getting eventually, maybe in two seasons' time, like the anime fight of the season that's already been foreshadowed between Eamon and Damon. <laughs> so very keen for that as well. This has been our Local legend series with Sydney-based writer Ali Burnham. Thank you so much. I have a name. No, thank you for having me. I'm Cricket. I'm Wombat. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of our Local Legends series with Sydney-based screenwriter Ali Bonham. You can check out the links from Atropius and Unsound in the description below and also check out her podcast with Precipice Fictions, Pros and Cons. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at This Is A Popcast. Please give us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. Hey, we'll see you next time.